Welcome to God, Yay or Nay. I'm your host, Noor Kidwai. I'm here to find out how we grow, transform, and become our best selves. How we create meaning in our lives. Come join me on my journey. Welcome to another episode of God, Yay or Nay. This is your host, Noor Kidwai. Thanks for tuning in. My guest this week is Andrea Hansen. Andrea is a therapist. She is so knowledgeable. She gives us so much information on how she helps people deal with different mental health issues and all types of severity. Uh, so this is so much, uh, so good for everybody. So I hope you guys enjoy. Uh, please check me out on Instagram at NewerKidY. We're part of the Comedy Here Often podcast network on 604 Records, so check them out too. But let's get into this week's episode, everybody. My guest this week, Andrea Hansen. Hey, welcome to another episode of God, Yay or Nay. I'm here with Andrea Hawson. Andrea, thanks for joining me. Thank you, Nor. It's good to be here. Uh, this is going to be a fun episode. Uh, yeah, so you basically, I just want to kind of get my audience a little introduction into you. I know you're a therapist. Uh, you deal with trauma, addiction. Uh, you work with psychedelics. These are all things I freaking love to talk about on this podcast. So I think uh, you're a perfect guest. Um, maybe uh, give a, maybe introduce yourself to my audience uh, and they can get to know you a little bit. Yeah, totally. So I have been a therapist. I've been working in the mental health field for over a decade and, you know, got graduate school, licensure, all a whole bunch of specialized trainings and experience in complex trauma and addiction. And now I'm venturing out of the mental health field because there are so many things that are like way stuck in the past with the mental health field. And it's just like way wrapped up in these regulations that don't make any sense. So I'm stepping out of the mental health field and I'm working a lot with psychedelics. So I've done the, the official like MAPS training. I don't know if anyone's heard of that, but MAPS is kind of the leading people. They're trying to get MDMA therapy approved. Yeah, we've uh, I've had a couple on my podcast, actually. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I've done their training. I've done some trainings through Pratty. Um, and uh, yeah, so so psychedelic breakthroughs are something that I'm, I'm, I've been focusing on for the last a little bit over a year. Okay. And uh, that's cool. And when you're talking about the mental health field uh, stuck in the past, can you maybe elaborate on that a little bit? Because that yeah. is something I'm a little interested in. Yeah, totally. And I'm sure anyone that's seen a therapist or a psychiatrist is kind of interested in this. Of like, hey, what's going on here? Why do I feel like so stuck in therapy? Because at first it can feel like you're making some progress, but then it's like you're on this loop. And I've experienced it myself as a client and I've experienced it as a therapist as well. So I really dug into what is happening there. So what's happening is that all of the diagnoses that you hear of, depression, anxiety, bipolar, ADHD, all of that kind of stuff, they're all housed in a book called the DSM, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual. And that manual was created in the 1980s by a group of psychiatrists that wanted a similar language between themselves for diagnoses, kind of more like the medical field. Mm -hmm. But the issue is that they couldn't find any validity behind the diagnoses. So they put together this manual, they called it the DSM-3, even though there wasn't really a one hour or two, but they called it the DSM-3. And they were hoping that future researchers would be able to find the validity behind these diagnoses. So what I mean by validity is the actual biological underpinnings 
So like yeah. if you go to the doctor for like a broken arm, he doesn't just interview you and then decide you have a broken arm. He does an x-ray and the x-ray is the validity behind the diagnosis of a broken arm. Uh, yeah, true. Right. So the validity behind something like depression or anxiety is they want to see something in the brain, right? Right. Yeah, exactly. You would want to see that, but it's not there. Uh, so there's been like millions of dollars spent on looking for this validity. There's been a couple more DSMs released since then. Now we're on the DSM-5 as of 2013. And actually in 2013, a bunch of national research organizations decided to pull all of their funding out of the DSM research because of the complete lack of validity. But the mental health system is stuck on the DSM, partially due to pharmaceutical companies and partially due to insurance companies and partially due to they don't want to go out to the world and say like, hey, guys, we've been totally wrong. These diagnoses don't actually exist. Sorry. Yeah. And um, I, I like that. And thanks for yeah, thanks for explaining that so well, because that that's such a interesting because like when when these when these big like companies and industries are all wrapped up in something to change it, it, it has to be such a hard process to do. Totally. And there's so much wrapped up in the legal systems and the education systems and like schools get grants for kids that have ADHD and the, and yeah, you know that. people get different sentences if they're deemed insane. So it's so like intertwined in everything in our culture that it's really hard for the mental health bill to be like, hey guys, never mind, we have to completely scrap all of this and reroute okay so when um when they do start coming to uh like when they come to like uh different types of therapy or different types of way of looking at mental health and they get introduced into this system that's already so ingrained is there a lot of resistance to it like do you see any positivity like maybe there will be some change uh, coming in, in the future I hope so. You know, there, there's been a couple of researchers on the sidelines that have been really pushing against the, the whole system. Uh, one of them is Dr. Bessel van der Kolk. He's done an amazing job of researching complex trauma. In complex trauma, there is validity behind. So there are brain scans that show us the regions of the brain that get impacted by different kinds of complex trauma during different stages of development and what that ends up looking like later in life. So there's lots of actual validity behind that. And, and Dr. Bessel van der Kolk has been one of the, the researchers at the head of that. Um, there's also a really good book. It's called Saving Normal by Alan Francis. And he his mentor was in charge of creating the DSM-3 and he was in charge of creating the DSM-4 and the DSM-4 revision. And he um, when the DSM-5 was coming out, he put out this book called Saving Normal, um, an insider's revolt that was basically warning the field, like, hey guys, stop, we, we have to stop. So there is a movement of people within the field saying, you know, we, we need to move out of this. So it really depends on where you're at as a, as a therapist, as a clinician, as a psychiatrist, if you're, if you're realizing like, hey, this isn't working super well, we're, we're not giving them our best. And then if you have the time, if you have the spaciousness to be able to look into why exactly that's happening, and you, you do see a lot of therapists either leaving the field or shifting to, to the outskirts of the field. Yeah, that's interesting because uh, and I got to talk to a couple of therapists on this uh, podcast as well. And it seems like there's a lot of them now that are using a lot more um, like a lot of exercises to kind of get people to deal with their anxiety, depression, trauma, whatever it is. 
but like uh, something that you wouldn't expect from somebody in the mental health or medical field where you're just like, okay, so like I, I could see it seeping in and like, let's just uh, keep our fingers crossed that this movement continues and like uh, totally. goes in a good uh, direction. Um, so you did mention complex trauma. So can you give us an idea of like, like what does complex trauma mean? How does that different from just regular trauma if there is a difference? Yeah, for sure. So, so the diagnosis of PTSD stemmed from war veterans and that that's how it was created. And that is, it's complex in its own way. Um, but, but when we look at simple versus complex trauma, both are devastating, very impactful, both disrupt neurology in the brain and, and they both, um, keep you kind of locked in a, in a different brain pattern than you would be without the trauma. Okay. The difference between complex trauma is that typically it happened more throughout development and it's harder to put a finger on. So it's, it's more, um, you're reacting to an environment. So anytime a traumatic experience happens, the environment is so overwhelming that your brain can't stay on its natural course and its body can't stay on its natural course. Instead, it's completely disrupted because it's trying to adapt and mitigate to the situation at hand. So adapting, meaning how do I how do I continue given these different circumstances and mitigating me, meaning how do I decrease the potential harm that could come from these experiences? Okay. And what happened in complex trauma is typically there's something happening in the home. So if you take a war, for example, of course, nobody can really understand what's happening in that war other than the veterans who were there. However, the, the veteran is typically acknowledged as a hero, as a good person, and the other people are the bad guy mm -hmm. that they were fighting against. And you can talk about it. You can say, I was a war hero. But say you take, for example, incest within the home. You can't really go to school and talk to your teachers about that. You're not really acknowledged as a hero if you go out and you talk about that. You're, you're more likely to disrupt the entire family, maybe even be placed in foster care. There's a lot of secrecy and there's a lot of shame around it. And you start to develop this sense of there's something wrong with me. There's something horrifically wrong with me because the situation is happening. And it makes a lot of sense evolutionarily that, that children start to blame themselves for their environment as opposed to their caregivers because they need their caregivers for, um, for protection, for survival, essentially. Mm -hmm. so, so that's where complex trauma comes in. And then what we do accidentally throughout our lives is we recreate these situations where we we put ourselves in the position of the victim repeatedly throughout life. And it's a way of our body trying to solve the problem and recreate a different, uh, a different reality. But it, by putting ourselves in the same reality, it doesn't make a lot of logical sense, but we do it chemically. So what we end up seeing is a lot of veterans who do end up with really significant PTSD, they have complex trauma from earlier on in life. Okay. Yeah. And uh, so how do you, like, when you're saying we recreate these situations because of our trauma, can you maybe go into a little bit more detail into that? Yeah. So, so I think a lot of people have heard of the concept of codependency, right? Mm -hmm. So that would be a recreation of trauma. So if you grow up with a, maybe a parent who is an addict or really emotionally struggling, okay, you start to develop this feeling of like, okay, I need to be better so that they can be better. They're not being better because of me for whatever reason. And then that kid 
is more likely to grow up to be in a relationship that is either abusive or with somebody who's struggling with addiction pretty severely. Mm. And they're stuck in that pattern of being the person needs to help. Okay. So it's like, I get that. So like, um, I, I can see that a lot of our trauma can actually like actually pretty much kind of give us an identity almost. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. So when you're a therapist and then you, you're kind of like going through this with somebody and you're like, un, like unraveling all this thing, are you trying to like unravel that identity as well? Yeah. And, and really get back to the truth that, and that's what I love about trauma therapy is it's not about changing a person. It's helping them get rid of all of that stuff that isn't really the truth is they, we make up these truths about ourselves from a very young age in, in complex trauma environments. Um, and then, and, and even, I, I wanna go back a little bit further because it, you can live in a totally happy, healthy home, but if you experience something like um, umbilical cord strangulation at birth or adoption mm. at birth, that also disrupts your, your brain chemistry and your development. So it doesn't have to be something that you're consciously aware of. It can be something even in utero that happens, right? So then the body starts to react to the world in a certain way of I'm lesser than, or I'm not worthy, or I'm unlovable, or, you know, something like that. And creating, creating these stories that then create these feedback loops in these environments. So what we do in complex trauma therapy is we don't, we don't really talk about it because research shows that talking about it is only about 2% effective in treating it. Oh, really? But, so if you're sitting there with your therapist and you're talking about it and talking about it, talking about it, and you're like, oh my gosh, this is terrible. It's because <laughs> it's not effective. And it, it's not because there's something wrong with you. There's something wrong with the mental health field. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so what we do is we go in and we, we find the truth. You know, what is the absolute truth about you? Because that's not it. And you may have built your entire life and your entire identity off of, you know, this being the truth about you, that you're defective in some way, but that's not true. So how do we recalibrate to a new truth? And then we go in and we find all of the different pieces of the self. Something that happens during trauma is that the thalamus and the default mode network, the two areas that are supposed to make sense of what's going on and track the timing of what's going on, get disrupted. So we get these pieces of ourselves that are lost throughout our own timeline. So we have to go in and find those pieces and bring them into the present so that we can end the self-sabotaging behaviors. The, the self-sabotaging behaviors aren't self-sabotage at all. They're different pieces of ourselves trying to get their needs met. Okay, so you're saying, so the default mode network and the thalamus, so these are ways that we make sense of our past, make sense of like the timeline of how things happen. So these yes. things get disrupted is mm-hmm. what you're saying. And, uh, uh, process of therapy is to kind of bring back those old memories and be able to kind of make sense of it in the present moment. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So if you think of the thalamus of like, as like a chef, it takes all the different random ingredients. So like the sensory input, which is what you're feeling and what you're seeing and what you're hearing and the thoughts that you're having and the emotions that you're having, and it puts it all together in the skillet and it creates you this, this meal or this memory of like, Hey, this is what's happening. And this is what happened. But if that gets disrupted, what you end up with is flashbacks and flashbacks aren't like what they show in the movies where you're like suddenly seeing everything as if you're back in the, in the place. It's more of your suddenly being overwhelmed with a sensory experience or an emotion or 
you know, something like that that's happening, that's taking over your body and your experience, but it's not pieced together because it never got pieced together by the thalamus in the first place. Damn. All right. That's a great way to kind of say it. And like, yeah, that whole feeling of getting taken over, that's kind of probably where we kind of get our maybe anxiety or depression or whatever it is. Yeah, exactly. So that's where like research like just like Bessel van der Kolk and stuff, they've, they've been going against the DSM saying like, hey, let's look at the actual validity of complex trauma. Because if we can take away these diagnoses and stop chasing our tails with like, well, I have depression and this is just how it is. And I need to be on medications for my, my whole life, which by the way, psychiatric medications taken as prescribed kill more people than heroin overdoses every year. Um, and they're less than 30% effective for the most part. So a lot of, a lot, some of, some of the psychiatric medications on the market are actually even placebos because placebos have the same effectiveness as psychiatric medications, but, uh, without any side effects. Mm. So they, and placebos are sugar pill pills for people who haven't heard that word before. Um, so, so they, um, so he, he, you know, he says like, Hey, let's, let's focus more on the complex trauma. Um, and that's, that's really where the validity lies is, you know, if you're experiencing something like depression, like anxiety, like biphasic moods, which is incorporated in ADHD, bipolar and borderline personality disorder, then their roots are really neurologically in the brain and a, a complex trauma expert can really help find, you know, which regions of the brain those are and help heal them directly. Hmm. That's, uh, that's very interesting. Um, and like, yeah, it's kind of interesting how you were saying, like, how these feelings come up, because like that trauma is there, and then it kind of manifests itself almost as different feelings that we ourself, uh, from what I know, like, I've, I've like, kind of had anxiety throughout my 20s, and I still have it now. And like, um, I'm definitely a lot better at dealing with it, but like, I know when sometimes when it gets intense, it's like a feeling that's something I try to run away from. It's like, it's like, it becomes a little too overwhelming. So I do something else. Like I try to like, you know, I'm moving around or I'm in my head or I, you know, I try to distract myself from it, but is that kind of how you see these like, um, trauma, it kind of builds up and then it can become ADHD. It can become depression. It can become anxiety. Yeah, absolutely. It, that's just how it manifests in the brain. It's the brain is so complicated. So depending on the areas of the brain that get disrupted and how the person specifically adapts and mitigates to the situation, that's going to create these symptoms that are ADHD, depression, anxiety, et cetera. Okay. And uh, so I, I was uh, wondering, um, have you like uh, talked or have you are any experience in like the psychosomatic kind of therapies? Like, oh, yeah. Yeah, because like, uh, that's one thing I've uh, been trying to like, uh, wonder about now. It's like, when these feelings pop up, and they're, they sometimes can be overwhelming, but a big part of it is almost to just try to like, be with the feeling and kind of see where it goes and kind of like, and this is almost a part of the healing process. Uh, is that something you kind of uh, like, uh, go by? Yeah, absolutely. And that's where we're really paying attention to the body and the body is really the ultimate witness. So when our brain disrupts and can't handle the environment or is, you know, hyper-focused on something else or dissociated even, or maybe even asleep, our body is keeping track and keeping score, right? So, so listening to our body is hugely impactful and being able to find 
paths to healing and being able to notice that feeling in the body and even expand that feeling of the body and look at it. Mm-hmm. A lot of it is even communicating with that part of the body. Like, Hey, what are you doing? <laughs> what are you needing me to hear right now? <laughs> ha, ha, ha. When I first started doing that, I felt so silly. I'm like, this yeah. is so stupid. <laughs> but uh, When you uh, like, it's funny how effective that can be just because it almost gets your attention even more focused on that part of the body and uh, how you said that attention on your body how it expands the more you do it because like I remember when I first started doing like just those simple kind of meditations of just like looking through your body at first it was like you could like all right I'll put my attention on my stomach or I'll put my attention here and it was there but like you know it wasn't like that like deep or anything but like the more you do it you're just like okay this uh, the attention deepens and you can really feel so much more of your body that you just never were aware of at all oh yeah exactly and then from there you can really shift it so so an example that I came by recently was um a feeling a sensation of of being stuck in the throat and Mm -hmm. this person was really having a hard time with um, with saying what they wanted to say with, um, with all kinds of stuff. But when we focused on where the emotion in the body was, it was in their throat. So we look really deeply at this position in the throat. And there's a couple techniques that I use in therapy that makes it easier. Sometimes it's hard to, to do it on your own because we're so stuck in the upper regions of our brain. But if you let yourself sink down into your body in the lower regions of your brain, um, what we discovered is that this wasn't even from necessarily their own life. It was from their grandpa who had been in a war and then there and lived during war times. And then their their parent had also lived during these war times, more of depression era stuff, right? Mm. And they had developed this strict sense of how you need to be, how you need to live in order to be safe and in order to be okay. So throughout their life, this little piece in their throat developed and was holding them back and constricting them, saying, No, this is how we need to be safe right? So if we go in and we expand that and we pay attention to that and talk to it, we can then say like, hey, you have done such a great job protecting me. Like, thank you. Wow. Like you care about me so much. Mm -hmm. Also, at the same time, we don't live in war times anymore. And let me tell you a little bit about how we live now. And, And in some way, even though you've been helping me so much, you have been also holding me back from a lot of things that I want to do. So is there a different way that you could help me, right? And then you can transition it at that point. And it's, it's a consensual transition between you and that, that part of self, because that part of yourself is important. Um, you can transition to something that is going to be more beneficial and break free of whatever it was that was holding you back from. Mm-hmm. And uh, I like how you kind of like the way you talk, uh, to, like talk to it almost because like, <laughs> it's true, like, uh, it, you kind of got to talk to it like that. Because if you don't, um, yeah, I don't know, like, it feels like those parts of yourself need to be heard, like if uh, they're, they're kind of coming up, because it's like a response. And like how you said that wartime thing, like that's, that's actually pretty cool. Like that you that's you're kind of showing like it's a generational trauma. Oh, yeah. And like, yeah, that's like, it's interesting to kind of see that, but it, it's coming up because it's trying to help you. So if you kind of, you have to give it some like, Hey, I'm hearing you, I'm aware of you. And that makes it like, uh, 
yeah, I think that's like the more healthy way to kind of deal with it. Even though like sometimes uh, I know like people in our culture might look at that like that's a little weird. <laughs> yeah, totally. It is a little weird. And it, it takes a lot of practice, especially because a lot of times we're taught to continue to shove these parts of ourselves into a corner. Like, oh, well, that's a past self. That's not me anymore. So you need to go away. But rejecting parts of self is never going to create a whole self. And then it just kind of buries it, right? It buries yeah. it. And then that can... It, in its own self cause like its own issues right yeah exactly because I think burying stuff which a lot of us like do like it, it it is kind of a like kind of a little bit of a defense mechanism a lot of us have but that causes just more repression and then it's more shit we're gonna have to dig out in the future <laughs> exactly exactly <laughs> and it makes sense to bury things especially when you're a child or when you're in the thick of it like you can't you can't deal with it all right then mm. but then we we get this fear in us of like oh my gosh if I unleash this it's going to overtake me I'm going to like not be okay it's going to overrun my life I'm going to lose everything right and so we we keep burying it based on that fear but the reality is you're in a different space now than you were when you buried all of that. You gotta mm -hmm. bring it up to the current. Yeah, and uh, maybe that's a good transition into psychedelics because yeah, I think sure. <laughs> I think that's uh, one of us uh, psychedelics uh, big things is uh, being able to bring something up like way quicker than uh, maybe therapy or any other kind of things will be able to bring something up. Um, can you give us a little idea of like your background in psychedelics and what made you come into this? Yeah, so I, um, I, I'm a total research nerd. Okay. I love research, love, I read tons of research. And the research around psychedelics has been available since the 1960s. They, they've been doing tons and tons of research around the use of psychedelics in complex trauma and it got shut down by the government for a while so that's where maps has been steadily working in the background to get it fda approved again at least for mdma um but you know back in the in the psychedelic renaissance they were using psychedelics for um a lot of different kinds of psychedelics for for treating complex trauma mdma psilocybin um and ketamine and ketamine is one that we don't really think of as a psychedelic, but it absolutely is. The reason we don't think of it as a psychedelic is we hear of it usually as like a horse tranquilizer. Yeah. More people taking horse medicine now, right? <laughs> right? I mean, between COVID, vermectin <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> or whatever it's called. Oh my gosh. Um, which I'm not, I'm not stating opinion either way on that. Um, but so, so ketamine is really interesting because it has been FDA approved since the 60s, but it has typically been used in surgeries. But what they were finding is people were having these, um, these interesting effects when they were coming out of the surgery. And of course, medical science being what it is, they were freaked out by these effects. They started giving people Xanax at the end of their surgeries Ooh. to make them not have those effects. Ooh. Come on, guys, benzos, really? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but what was happening is they were landing in their body because it's a dissociative anesthetic. So the, the ketamine takes them off to la la land, wherever they're going, instead of suppressing their body, like most anesthetics do when you put them under for surgery. So they're just completely dissociated from their body in a completely different sphere of reality. And then at the end, they kind of land back in their body and that's what was happening that's what, and so the psychedelic researchers were like hey that sounds interesting to us let's play with this so they they started giving it to people in much lower doses 
And most ketamine clinics today give it in such a low dose that you don't have any psychedelic effects at all. And again, that's the fear of the medical industry of, you know, let's give them Xanax to help them with this and let's, let's make it so low that there's no psychedelic effect. But research has really shown that that psychedelic piece of it is really important for the results, whether it's psilocybin or ketamine or MDMA, you do want the dose to have those psychedelic effects because what they do is they, they disrupt our sense of reality and everything that we have built that's neurotic and that's based on fear that says we need to be this exact way and we need to live in this exact box in order for everything to be safe and okay and to not be rejected. And it melts all of that away and it says, okay, but what if this is reality? What if there's a bigger, deeper reality that is so much more ancient that you could ever imagine and that is so much more important than you can ever imagine and you are a part of it and this is this is what's really important. What what then? Mm-hmm. Right? That's the cool thing about psychedelics. <laughs> it's the very cool thing about it, yeah. And I like how that the whole idea of like um, the dissociation, like away from your body, and then what they're coming the coming back into the body. Because I could see you going into the surgery. Because I felt that like uh, I've worked with uh, ayahuasca a lot, and I felt the coming back into the body, and that could be a hectic experience because you're just like, where the fuck am I? And then all of a sudden, it's like you're trying to, you're like all of a sudden feeling your body again and like coming back into it, and you're kind of in and out, and that that whole feeling of been being in and out that can be very. Uh, it can be scary. Like it's definitely a little scary, but um... yeah, absolutely. With ketamine, a lot of times people think that they're dying and that's, I actually was was talking to a friend recently who during her birth, she was having a C-section birth and her doctor gave her ketamine, but didn't tell her that he, she was giving her ketamine and he didn't tell her what the effects were going to be. So she thought she had died. And she was freaking out thinking that she had died during childbirth and then eventually landed back in her body. Um, she was having an out-of-body experience and experiencing everything from yeah. an observation point of view. So that's a completely unethical and not okay way. Yeah. <laughs> you kind of want to, yeah, you kind of want to tell people when you're giving yeah. them a bunch <laughs> of You might think that you're dying, but you're not. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's a good way to, so when we talk about this dissociation or this, um, you, you said that too, you, you went, uh, she went into a completely observational point, like when she was on the ketamine. And so she was just observing. So that's kind of a good thing where this healing comes in, because you were talking about the default mode network, you know, the, the, the part of the brain, the thalamus and stuff, and how we don't really remember, we like we don't remember what happened a lot and we don't have the time in and a lot of the healing comes from bringing that back into the present and bringing those memories back and just kind of being with them that can be a very healing thing with psychedelics because like I know I've heard this story over and over again with psychedelics with people saying like this memory of some sort of traumatic event pops up and I'm just observing the event of the event without any emotions without anything and just being there and seeing whatever it is and and almost coming out with a completely different view of it yeah yeah absolutely it it strips away that fear and it strips away that blocks and all those protections that are keeping us from going down there so it, it kind of just opens that cellar door and is like hey maybe this isn't as scary anymore it was scary back then, but we can look at it now. And then once there, you're in that space. So I do a lot of therapy conjoined with the 
the actual psychedelics. So once that space is open and that um, cellar door is open, they're able to bring that into the present. And then what's really powerful in that moment is actual body movements in reaction. Because what happens during trauma is our bodies typically aren't able to move. We usually either we're frozen or we're like needing to hide. A lot of times we have tenseness in our shoulders and our backs from that experience. So if you're able to get that experience back into the body and then move the body in that experience in a way that you weren't able to before or shout in a way that you weren't able to before, whatever it is that, that you need to say that you couldn't say in that moment while that cellar door is open, that's massively healing and very quickly shifts that experience of complex trauma. That's so cool. I, I love that. And uh, so when you do a, like a therapy session or now you're are you working with ketamine or is it MDMA? It's uh, ketamine or psilocybin. Um, MDMA okay. is not technically legal or FDA approved anywhere. Oh, oh, okay. I didn't know that. Um, yeah. Okay. And uh, do you see differences in ketamine or and psilocybin? Oh yeah, for sure. Ketamine during their peak experience, 45 minutes to an hour and a half, they're, they're pretty much gone. They're not really um, interacting with me a whole bunch. They're experiencing whatever they need to experience, but we do still, um, I'm available in case they need something to push against or a hand to hold or someone to interact with. But for the most part, they're experiencing whatever they need to be experiencing. Okay. And then the cool thing about ketamine is as they're coming out, their brain is pumped full of glutamate, which is a learning chemical. It's easiest to think of as the uh, cravings in addiction where our body releases dopamine or serotonin and then glutamate reminds us of how we got that. So, so with drugs, it would be that constant craving of like, oh, we need to go back and get this because it is where we get dopamine, which is associated with survival. So glutamate helps our brain learn. So when the brain is pumped full of that glutamate, we can do a lot of deep dive rewiring um, work and it's going to stick a lot longer than it would during a regular therapy visit. Okay. So what are you saying? Learning, like you're right there. You were talking about kind of learning about your own addiction is what you're saying. Like, so you're no, it's so learning. So it, it is the craving and that's how the brain, the brain learns. The brain learns in addiction that, um, that the, the thing that's giving us dopamine, let's say it's heroin for fun. Um, the thing that's giving us that dopamine burst then sets off the glutamate cycle, which then reminds us of what gave us the dopamine burst. Okay. So and that's kind of telling us, Hey, if we want more of that, this is yeah, okay. Exactly. And dopamine is associated in our body and our lower brain with survival. So if we experience distress, then the glutamate is going to say, I know how to fix it. Heroin. Mm. Right. So that's what leads us into this addiction cycle. So essentially it makes the brain very plastic and very malleable okay. glutamate does. So when the brain is pumped full of glutamate, we can then go in and we can do some really deep rewiring to restructure the brain and to learn new mechanisms. Okay, so on a psychedelic experience, so when it's coming out of the ketamine experience, this glutamate's uh, released and that helps you do that deep re rewiring of like, hey, this is more healthy ways to kind of cope maybe or? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, exactly. And this is how we reintegrate, right? And th this is how we, we re-experience our lives and ourselves and, and connect to that new sense of self 
based on the truth and meaning and purpose that's abandoning that idea of not being good enough or, or being too stupid or not being worthwhile, whatever it is that our complex trauma had us believe, mm. um, but realigning with that new truth. Whereas on the other side, um, psilocybin is a longer experience, more like four hours, but there is consistent interaction throughout it. So there's a lot of different um, processes that we go through during the, the quote unquote peak experience of that four hours. So that's how ketamine and, and psilocybin are different. Okay. And uh, you kind of like stay with them during the whole experience with like uh, uh, psilocybin? Yep. Yep. I do one-on-one, like totally in-depth, like deep rewiring, deep recalibrations the whole time with, with both ketamine and psilocybin. That's interesting. I I wouldn't mind trying that kind of, uh, I've never done like psilocybin in like a place where I just kind of sit down and go inside. I I, like psilocybin's (laughs) always been like, uh, go on a nature hike kind of like uh, psychedelic yeah. for me, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which uh, honestly, I, uh, yeah, it's always fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, also, you were talking about moving the body. Um, I was wondering, like, how does movement and like processing emotions, like how do that, like, how do they, what's that relationship like? Yeah. So the brain is built on top of the body. The brain is a processor of the body. So what the body is experiencing informs the brain. Uh, So when the body, um, so let's take, for example, touching a hot stove, right? So you touch a hot stove, you don't think, man, this is hot. I better move my hand. It's a reflex to move your hand. And that reflex is stored in your spine. It doesn't ever even go to your brain. Later on, it'll go to your brain and the brain will process it. And your brain will take credit for it and be like, I'm so smart. I moved my hand. (laughs) 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 But that's not what happened. Your spine made that happen. And that's what happens, you know, a lot. Our our top part of our brain, the prefrontal cortex, where we have all of our cool thoughts and ideas and our sense of who we are, that doesn't even come online. It's not even existent until we're one and a half years old. And it doesn't even fully develop until we're 25. So the body is really in charge in so many ways and the deciding factor. And research has shown that we can't use the upper part of our brain to change the lower parts of our brain and our body. Like you can't think, I would like my heart to be slower now. Mm-hmm. It's not gonna happen. Like your heart's gonna do, what you can do to make your heart beat slower is change your breath. Change your breathing. Yeah. That's in your body, mm. right? So, so trying to convince your body to change is about as effective as trying to convince a six month old to sleep through the night and not cry this time. It's not gonna happen. You can't convince them of anything. What you have to do is start from the body because the body is what actually is able to inform the brain as opposed to the other way around. So we can go back and we can talk about a moment of trauma. So I'll use an example from a recent psychedelic retreat I did. It was psilocybin um, where this woman, she, she had an experience when she was about four years old of witnessing some domestic violence. And she was worried that her, her mom was going to be severely hurt or killed in this moment, she was witnessing this domestic violence. And she, like many four-year-olds, became a vault where she was storing this information. She was holding very still. She didn't want to be seen. She didn't want to add to the chaos or the disruption or anything. So she she just held it all in. So we could talk about it and that's all fine, but she'd be processing it as an adult, not as a four-year-old. So that's not going to actually be helpful because it's the four-year-old that experienced this. 
So as part of her um, psychedelic experience, she was back in that moment and it, it didn't appear to her as if she was back in that moment. It appeared in, in a lot of different interesting colors and textures and stuff, but her body was back in that moment. So what we had her do was push against me as hard as she could and scream whatever she needed to scream. Just really let out, you know, get away from me, like don't hurt her, whatever it was. And she very quickly shifted into a state of power and calm. Mm-hmm. It, it was is very different from just talking about it and rehashing it. If that okay, no, it makes a lot of sense. You're actually reliving that experience. It feels yeah. like and changing it. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's so interesting. And I like how you said like, yeah, it's like your body is where this kind of like where the like kind of stuff is happening. Like if you touch the stove it's like the spine which is like all of that's kind of doing the whole process of you feeling the pain and getting it out of there and the brain kind of comes in afterwards with the memory of like the experience mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. that's a very good way to look at it so like when you're trying to like help with like uh getting people to like I don't know if you want to process these emotions more it's like more paying attention to the body and being with the body then right yeah yeah, that's always my first question, especially because our words are limited, right? Like, um, like someone says sad, and to someone that might mean that their face burns and they want to cry, and to somebody else that might mean that their heart is heavy, and to somebody else that might mean that they feel like there's a heavy blanket on them. Mm. So, so we want to know, okay, so you say you're sad, what does that feel like in your body is always my next question. I love that. Yeah. Well, honestly, Andrea, you're really good at this stuff. Uh, like, honestly, this is uh, really, yeah, yeah, no, this is uh, really uh, good. Uh, it's opening my eyes into this stuff as well. And I, uh, and I like how, like, you, you fucking know your shit. I can tell. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, I try. <laughs> <laughs> and is this something you've always been interested in since, uh, like, like, when did you want to, like, come into this uh, field? Uh yeah, so it's it's been a journey to be honest. So I grew up in a in a really chaotic divorce situation. My parents got divorced when I was two, and we saw a lot of court psychologists and court order therapists that were not helpful. Hmm. And then as a teenager, I was really really struggling. I really needed some help, but um, didn't really get any from any of the therapists that I saw. It was a lot of you know the talking about things and not. They didn't really see me. They didn't really understand me. Um, and then I was sent away to a, a treatment center. I don't know if you're familiar with the treatment centers in Utah, but they're Utah, I think in one other state are the only states where these kinds of treatment centers are legal um, in the world, oh, damn. <laughs> as, as far as I know, where, uh, and, and they're really um, traumatizing and re-traumatizing. It's something that I'm, I'm trying to work on changing in the mental health field as these treatment industries. Um, but I, I went and I spent about six months in there and it was a really terrible experience. So I decided that I wanted to become a therapist that actually knew how to help people and actually mm-hmm. help people. So I started out there. I, I started volunteering for the rape recovery center, um, when I was 18 and then I went through undergrad and graduate school, um, and then worked with a, a lot of different um, people, but a lot of addiction, which is 100% correlated with complex trauma, and a lot of um, really what would be considered severe cases of 
you know, the personality disorders and the, the really strong addictions. And I worked in teen treatment as well in looking at those. And what I consistently found was complex trauma at the root. So the more I went to trainings and the more I read the research, the more that really got confirmed of my, my gut reaction here is, um, is aligned with the research. So I started diving more and more into that and it, it's really become quite the passion of mine. Um, and alongside that also participating in different spiritual and cultural healing events mm. um, outside of the therapy realms for myself. And then finding um, there, there's a lot of research out there that correlates that makes sense of like, oh, that is effective because of this. And, and so I really view, you know, using complex trauma techniques and using psychedelics together as kind of a return to truth within, um, within the healing environments, because it's been used, psychedelics have been used by shamans and healers since the dawn of time. So there's a lot of ancient wisdom mixed in there. And now we have a lot of the, the more modern science to back up exactly why that is. Hell yeah. And like, I hope this uh, movement keeps going. And uh, yeah, it's interesting. Like, I like how you were in the, in the field and like, now you're kind of being like, Hey, I'm finding like the places I, I want to go. It's like, I don't know if you've heard that uh, saying, like, find the others, like, when you want to make change, you know, find the others who are, like, uh, in that, like, who believe what you believe and, like, create oh, yeah. that new community, create that new movement, because, um, yeah, I, I, I've seen a lot of people who have had rough times in the mental health uh, field, but then they come and they try different things like this, and, you know, you, you can see, you can see a lot of positive uh, changes in their life. Uh, one thing I, you did say, like, you came from an environment where you're like going through a messy divorce and stuff. I, I do know, like, even just like your parents having like big fights and stuff like that can be very traumatizing for a kid. And that can like store in your body. I, I know I've like just doing my own work. I've known like uh, I remember when my parents used to fight, like I used to tense up. And I remember like sometimes now like in my early 20s and stuff when I used to get anxiety it was like the same tense stuff I would do like at that time too and it was just like ah shit all right so this there is that like memory in the body as well right oh yeah absolutely and we would all love to think that like when we become adults that we've left it all behind us and we're totally over it right but our body still stores that memory and our body's still reacting as if that memory is happening. And our salient system just gets to decide whether or not our environment currently is similar enough to our past environment to set off that reaction. Mm. Right. So that, I think that's a, that's another important thing to remember with trauma is that blo it blocks a lot of people from working through trauma when they think that it means that they're blaming somebody else for their problems. Uh, blaming mm -hmm. mom and dad and their arguments for my problems and like no that's that's not it um trauma is how your body responded to the environment so it's very much an accountability thing is saying okay i'm acknowledging that my body is still responding to my environment as if i were a little kid and i was still in that environment and that's how my body responded to the environment then and everybody's body re responds differently. And that's why siblings that go through the same situations have different outcomes, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that's how your body responded. And that's how it's still responding. How do we get out of that? How do we break free of that? That's, uh, yeah, that's amazing. All right, Andrea, this was uh, so much fun. Uh, I got one more question. It's the question of the podcast. So uh, <laughs> Andrea Hansen, God, yay or nay? 
God nay for me. God nay. All right. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Yeah, you never uh I was thinking from Utah, I might get a little more. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I I was raised Mormon. I was raised Mormon. It's God yay for a lot of my family. But I for me personally, I'm all about accountability mm. and what I need to do to make the world a better place, what I need to do to make myself better. And I, I see this in, in camps, whether it's the manifesty camp or the, the God camp where it's, you know, as long as I'm thinking about things or praying about things or whatever, then there's this other being that's going to be mm. taking care of it. I don't have to worry about it because I can trust this other something, something to take mm-hmm. care of it. And but 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 no, like that's not what in my mind the world needs at this point. We all need to take accountability. We all need to heal. We all need to grow. We all need to be doing our part, or there's going to be destruction. And it's you know whether it's climate change or wars or a mixture of a whole, a whole bunch of different things, right? Um, it's up to us to make the change that we need. I love that, and uh, yeah, that's a perfect way of saying it. Is like accountability and. Uh... I agree with you. I, I, I like, uh, I, I think I'm like a little bit in the spiritual sense as well, but, and sometimes I do catch myself with a little bit of that manifesting kind of the, uh, m- mindset you just talked about where it's like, I'm trying to put the responsibility somewhere else when you're right. Like all of our, whatever it is, like if you're coming from it, from the nay or yay thing, it's like, you should have to come back to personal, like your personal accountability, because it's true what it's like what you do like if you're going to heal it's your personal accountability if you're going to help it's your personal accountability absolutely all right andrea that was such a such a good podcast you're such a great guest uh thank you for like just sharing all that knowledge you have i i, I really want to get you back on in the future because i i have a feeling we could talk for hours more <laughs> um <laughs> So let my audience know anywhere, anything you want to tell them about, anything you want to promote, uh, where they can get a hold of you. Uh, feel free right now, please. Yeah, for sure. So my website is just my name, Andrea Hansen, and that's just an O-N at the end, not an E-N, also andreahansen.net. And then my um, Instagram at Andrea Hansen Psych. Um, and uh, so you can, you can contact me, you can follow me through those two places, mainly. Currently, what I'm working on, um, I, I almost have it done. It's going to be done really soon. Is something called lifestyle prescriptions, where you fill out an assessment, and I tell you the exact regions of your brain that are under functioning and what you can do about it. So there's no diagnosis involved. There's no official kind of medically anything treatmenty type thing involved. It's all do-it-yourself things that you can do to optimize those specific regions of your brain at home. That's sweet all right uh, thanks so much andre this was a lot of fun thank you noria it was all right that was another episode thanks for listening everybody please like and subscribe to the podcast give it a good rating that always helps and share it with like-minded people i really do appreciate that you can check me out at newerkidy on instagram or check out my website, newerkidy.com. You can see my comedy. You can see my comedy dates that are coming up and all that other information. We're part of the comedy here often, Podcast Network on 604 Records. But I'll see you next time on another episode of God Yay or Nay. <laughs>